Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are in a two-part series on the life of Jesus called the Christ, and today's teaching is entitled The Heresy of Jesus Christ. The format for today's teaching is rather simple. I'm going to share with you five stories, all from Mark's gospel, about the life of Jesus. From there, I will ask three questions. What do these stories teach us about God? What do these stories teach us about ourselves? And what do these stories teach us about heaven? I'll then attempt to answer those questions, and then from there, we'll wrap up this podcast. So with that in mind, let's turn to the first story, which can be found in Mark chapter 1. To understand this story, we have to understand what's going on in Jerusalem at this time, as Jerusalem is the capital of Judea, where Jesus lives. If you visited Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you would have seen at the highest point of the city sat the temple to God. Now, if you would have stopped any Jew that was wandering the streets of Jerusalem and asked them the question, can you tell me where is God? This Jew would not have responded by saying, well, God is everywhere, man. No, instead, this Jew would point to the temple and say, God is in there. God lives with us. Now, the temple was also the architectural embodiment of the book of Leviticus. Now, if you've never read Leviticus, I don't know if I recommend that you should. (laughs) But if you have read Leviticus, I'm really impressed because it's a very difficult book to read. Leviticus is a manual for how a human being can be reconciled to God. After all, if you have the creator of the universe who is perfect and divine and infinite trying to live among and live with these imperfect, ephemeral human beings, there needs to be something to close the gap between the imperfections of humanity with the perfection of the divine. The book of Leviticus is a manual as to how to close that gap. And namely, Leviticus does this all through sacrifices of animals. It's very easy for us to hear about animal sacrifice and think to ourselves, well, this is a very primitive, barbaric kind of exercise. But we must acknowledge that for Leviticus's day, Leviticus was a progressive, radically inclusive book. Because what Leviticus did was Leviticus said, you don't have to keep giving and giving and giving to make God happy. You can give this much and then walk away knowing that you are at peace with God. Not only that, but built into Leviticus was an understanding of people in different socioeconomic classes. So if you were a poor person, there was an outline for an offering that you could offer on the altar before God. And if you were rich, then there was an offering for you to offer before God. And they were very different based on your income, but they were the same in God's eyes. So Leviticus told the poor people to bring a dove and the rich people to bring a bull before God when seeking reconciliation. As you can imagine, some people who were in charge of the temple and overseeing these sacrifices of these different classes saw this as an opportunity to exploit people and their guilt. And so what happened was these people who oversaw the temple said, oh, what we need to do is we need to make sure that the very best animals are offered on the altar before the all-powerful creator of the universe. So what we're going to do is we're going to be in charge of selling people temple-approved sacrifices. These temple-approved sacrifices will be without blemish and will only be the best of the best. 
According to New Testament commentator William Barclay, what happened was they would jack up the price of these sacrifices by a factor of 15. So if a dove cost $1 on the streets of Jerusalem, you can imagine a poor person would bring that before the temple and try to offer that as a sacrifice. The people in charge of the sacrificial system would say, oh, no, 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 this isn't a temple-approved dove. You have to buy a temple-approved dove. And the temple-approved dove cost $15. This is the equivalent of when you go and try to buy food at an airport and you're all of a sudden paying $12 for a sandwich. Except there is religious implications behind this. The poor people of Jerusalem were very oppressed and exploited by this system that was meant to make the religious elite more wealthy. Into this context, a man comes onto the scene. And his name is John the Baptist. Now we read in Mark chapter 1 verse 4 these words, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John, who was a poor Jew, saw this whole corrupt system and said, I'm not going to participate in this. So he goes out into the wilderness, specifically to the river Jordan, to the east of Jerusalem, And he starts welcoming the poor people who cannot afford sacrifices, who cannot afford to be reconciled with God, an alternative solution. Come into the water, he says, and I will baptize you and your sins will be forgiven the same as you offering a sacrifice on the altar at Jerusalem. The poor people of Judea flocked to John and his radical method of baptism. Not only that, but when the religious officials began to hear that someone was offering their service for free in the wilderness, they became very nervous. John was threatening their monopoly. So they went out into the wilderness and with paranoid eyes watched as John would preach to the people about forgiveness and then invite them to come down to the waters and be baptized. And then John would say to them, your sins are forgiven. So you can imagine this scene at the Jordan River is quite tense between the religious wealthy officials and John the Baptist who smells real bad and seems to be offering their same service for free. Jesus walks into this scene and he has a choice to make. Jesus is a poor Jew, so he would offer a dove at the temple if he decided to participate in that system. But then he looks at his cousin, who is John the Baptist, offering this thing for free And John's doing all of this without much scriptural support. But at the heart of John's message and the heart of John's work is this idea that these scorned bodies who are being told that they're not good enough, they need to be paid more for better sacrifices, and they are being exploited for their guilt. John sees them as human beings who need to be reconciled with God as well. And so Jesus has a real choice to make. Does he participate in the religious establishment as ordained by scripture? Or does he go out into the wilderness and be baptized in the Jordan River and affirm that God doesn't exploit people for their guilt? Well, Jesus chooses to go into the wilderness and be baptized by John. And this baptism is a radical sign of solidarity with the poor, the powerless, and the oppressed. While Jesus is being baptized, after he comes out of the water, 
The heavens rip open and Mark tells us that a voice from heaven says these words, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. God validates the son of God being baptized in the wilderness and finding forgiveness and reconciliation with God outside of a corrupt system. Which brings us to the second story. Now, the second story happens in Mark chapter 2 in a town called Capernaum, which is about 80 miles to the north of Jerusalem and rests on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is the home of Peter, and Jesus often stayed with Peter, so people often refer to Capernaum as the home of Jesus. So there's a story that unfolds in Mark chapter 2 in Capernaum where Jesus is beginning to get more and more of a reputation as a miracle worker and a faith healer. So people begin to travel from far and wide to come to this faith healer. One such person is surrounded by four friends, and this person is a paralytic. Now, in order to understand this story fully, we have to understand what's going on when someone is a paralytic in Jesus' day and age. Because back then, the theology of Jews was that God controlled everything. And so if somebody was healthy and well and rich and blessed, then it's because God wanted them to be healthy and well and rich and blessed. If someone was poor or oppressed or sick, it's because God wanted them to be sick. And so the whole theological mindset was that if you were sick, you were cursed by God. And the question that people would ask over and over again was if somebody was born with an illness, then did that person sin or did that person's parents sin? So there's this man who's been told his whole life that because he's a paralytic, that he is a cursed by God, that he is reprehensible before God. And yet, if he can somehow get healed, then it will show that God has forgiven this paralytic of his sins. So the paralytic, with four friends surrounding him, decide to travel to Capernaum, and when they get there, their hearts drop because Jesus is surrounded by a massive crowd and he is indoors. So the four friends hatch a plan. They decide they're going to rip the roof off the building and lower their friend down before Jesus so that Jesus can heal this paralyzed man. So they go up on the roof, they rip the roof apart, they lower Jesus down. Jesus, according to the text, isn't much surprised which is always shocking to me because if somebody ripped the roof off my house, I would say, hey, what's going on here? But Jesus watches this man being lowered down before him and his words recorded in Mark are simply this, son, your sins are forgiven. Now it's here that Mark tells us that the religious officials, the people who are in the forgiving of sins industry are sitting right there watching all of this. Now, they don't say anything, but it's probably pretty easy to read what's on their mind. Hey, you can't forgive sins. That's our economy. Jesus then looks at them as they kind of sit there uncomfortably and say, well, what's easier for me to say? To say to this man that your sins are forgiven or to say, pick up your mat and walk. And so Jesus then turns to the paralyzed man and says, pick up your mat and walk. And all of a sudden, the man stands up, picks up his mat, and walks away. If I was there in Capernaum at that moment, I would lose my mind. 
I would be screaming. I would be saying, whoa, <laughs> I cannot imagine keeping my cool in that moment. Here's Jesus showing up the temple officials. Not only that, but here's a man who's been accursed by God, according to their society, and is no longer accursed by God. This person all of a sudden is reconciled with God and Jesus supersedes and establishes a greater authority than the highest authority in all of the land. That is the second story, which brings us to the third story. Now, the third story is found in Mark chapter 7. We read Mark's words. From there, Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we read this in 2019, and we don't think much of it. But if we were reading this 2,000 years ago for the first time, and we were Jewish, we would say, what? Jesus went to Sidon? Because within first century Judaism, people knew that the Sidonians were the enemy. Not only that, but they had been the enemy for a long time. Now, the Sidonians could claim common lineage with the Jews, but ultimately they were tribes who had been warring for centuries, if not millenniums. In fact, when you go all the way back to the book of Judges, the seventh book of the Bible, we come across God speaking, and God speaks these words in Judges 10, verse 12. The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. A few books to the right, in 1 Kings chapter 16, we come across a king named Ahab, and Ahab was not a good king, much like all the kings in 1 Kings. And we read in 1 Kings 16, Ahab took as his wife Jezebel, daughter, king of Ethbal of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Jezebel is not looked favorably upon in scripture, and she is the representation of the region of Sidon. Not only that, but you keep going to the books to the right and you come across the prophets. and The prophets repeatedly condemned Sidon. Isaiah writes in chapter 23, Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. Jeremiah writes in chapter 23, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And then God begins to list nations that should drink the wine of wrath, one of which is Sidon. Which brings us to Ezekiel, who always strives to make things inappropriate. In chapter 32, Ezekiel writes, The princes of the north are there, all of them, and all the Sidonians who have gone down in shame with the slain for all the terror that they have caused by their might. The Sidonians lie uncircumcised with those who are killed by their sword and bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. In other words, the Jews hated the Sidonians. And probably the Sidonians hated the Jews. And so we read in Mark chapter 7 that Jesus said, hmm, let's go to Sidon. This is not a small deal. And when Jesus arrives in Sidon, what does he do? Well, he starts healing people. And so while most prophets and religious leaders will point at the Sidonians and say, those people are an embarrassment to God's creation. Jesus sees them and says, I think I'm going to go heal some of them. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to go live among them for a little while. <laughs> Christian author Rob Bell writes these words about Jesus going to Sidon. He says, according to Jesus, it is better to be a Sidonian than a devoted religious person who thinks the Sidonians are cursed. 
And that is the third story. Which brings us to the fourth story. Jesus and his companions are traveling back to Capernaum. And as they are traveling back, Jesus hears them talking but decides not to confront them about it. Once they arrive in Capernaum and they are sitting down and they are resting, Jesus then decides to casually bring up a question. What were you arguing about on the way here? Now, Mark captures this brilliantly in chapter 9 when he talks about the response of the disciples. Mark writes, but they were silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. After a pause, Jesus begins to speak and he says, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and a servant of all. These brilliant words indicate that God plays by different rules than the ways of humanity. If you want to be great, then stop striving to be great, Jesus says, and start serving the person next to you. Now there's another pause, and then John decides to speak up and talk to Jesus about a story. John says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, I love this verse in the Bible because here is John saying before Jesus, hey, we saw someone casting out demons and we tried to stop him. Is there such thing as a good demon possession? I mean, if you were to ask a group of people, are you for or against demon possession? Most people would say they're against demon possession. And here's John who sees someone pushing a demon out of someone, right? And John's response is, uh, oh, that's got to stop. We got to put that demon back in that person because this person who's casting out the demon is from the wrong tribe. And so he goes before Jesus trying to get like a pat on the back and saying to Jesus, look, we tried to stop someone because he wasn't one of us. So isn't that the right thing to do? Jesus responds by saying, do not stop him. <laughs> Duh. He then goes on to say, whoever is not against us is for us. And this story is so fascinating to me because John is much more interested in getting credit or being part of the right tribe than John is interested in putting an end to suffering in the world, right? John doesn't want suffering to end unless it ends through him. And if it doesn't end through him, well, then he's got to put a stop to that because he wants the credit for it. But the story doesn't end there. Because from Capernaum, Jesus and his disciples begin to travel to Jerusalem. And while they are on the road, John and James, John, the same guy who just said, we tried to stop the demon possession, go before Jesus on this dusty road and say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus responds by saying, what is it you want me to do for you? Because Jesus isn't going to blindly agree to any kind of human agreement. <laughs> I mean, duh. <laughs> James and John then say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. This is one chapter after Jesus told them to stop obsessing about who is the greatest. And it's right here at this moment that you understand what the inspiration was for the Jesus face palm statue. Jesus hears their request that they want to be at the greatest seat next to Jesus 
at the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus responds with one of the best responses in all of scripture. He says to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, James and John, I know you want to sit next to me at the kingdom, but get this. It's definitely not your seat. So you'd have to go ask the person who it belongs to. Now, as they are having this conversation on the road, Jesus decides to take a time out. He gathers all the disciples around. And in verse 42 of chapter 10, he begins to speak to them about what it means to be great. He says to the disciples, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. Jesus points to the non-religious people and say, look, if you want to look at what it means to be great according to their standards, eventually whoever becomes powerful ends up becoming a tyrant. So if you're concerned with gaining more and more power, what's going to happen is you're eventually going to turn into a tyrant. Jesus then goes on to say, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to be great, then stop trying to be better than the person next to you and instead lower yourself and serve them. And that is the fourth story, which brings us to the fifth story. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem with his disciples. And they go toward the temple. Now it's here that we have to talk a little bit about temple architecture. Because the temple had these sprawling courts on either side of the main building. And these courts on either side were known as the court of the Gentiles. Anybody from any religious background or any ethnic background was welcome to come and worship Yahweh in the court of the Gentiles. But if you look closely at models or drawings at the edge of the court of the Gentiles, right up next to the temple, there were these dividers that ran along the court of the Gentiles. And these dividers each were carved with signs, according to William Barclay. And these signs warned that if any Gentile, any non-Jew crossed past these markers, these barriers, they would then be punished with death. Now, if you were Jewish, you were allowed to go into the inner courts, but the outermost of the inner court was a court called the court of the women. And women who were unaccompanied by their husbands were only allowed to go into that court. Now, if their husband came along with them, or if there was a Jewish man, he could go into the innermost inner court, which was called the court of the Jews. And it was here that the sacrifices were actually offered just on the outside of the building that was the temple. Now, in the temple, there was one room that most of the priests could go into. It's called the holy place. And then in the innermost chamber was the most holy place in which one person and one person only, the high priest, could enter the presence of God one day of year on the day of atonement. So when you think about the temple in Jerusalem, it's important to get kind of these concentric circles that extend outward. And depending on your ethnicity, your race, and your religious official standing, determine what and how close you could actually be to God. 
Well, Jesus Christ, who Christians profess to be the Son of God, sees and understands all of this. And in Mark chapter 11, he decides to do something about it. He starts a riot by clearing the temple. He picks up a whip, flips over tables, yells and screams. And then he says these words in Mark chapter 11. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Not some of the nations, not one of the nations, but all of the nations. And Jesus sees this hierarchy, this division, this, these barriers and these walls, and he says, this has to change. And he goes and he clears the temple. And that is the fifth story about Jesus. When you consider these five stories, from the baptism of Jesus to the paralytic being healed, to Jesus going into Tyre and Sidon, to the disciples arguing about who is the greatest, to Jesus flipping over tables and saying, my house should be a house for all nations. There are three questions I'd like for us to ask. What do these stories tell us about God? What do these stories tell us about ourselves? And what do these stories tell us about heaven? So the first question, what do these stories tell us about God? One of the strangest things that I've heard is that Jesus came to this earth to set up a new religion, Christianity. And to be part of the Christian tribe is more important than being part of the Jewish tribe or other tribes because Christianity is the way, the truth, and the life, they would say. But when we read the stories of Jesus closely, we realize that Jesus was very devoted to his Jewish tradition. Yes, he would critique his own religion and see the problems in his own religion, but at the same time, he always considered himself part of the Jewish tribe and tradition. But when I look at these five stories in the Gospel of Mark, what I am overwhelmed with is how much people are trying to assert their authority over another human being. The number one way they justify this authority is based on their tribal affiliation. So the religious leaders jack up the prices on doves. Why? Because they're the religious leaders and they're ordained by God and they have the right to do something like that. But Jesus chooses the alternative. When a paralytic is lowered down before Jesus and Jesus says to him, your sons are forgiven, the tribe that's in charge of forgiving sins says, hey, you can't do that. And Jesus says, why are you any more special than everyone else? When the whole Jewish tribe was saying the Sidonians are evil, they're bad, they're accursed by God, Jesus said, I don't think they are. I think they're worth visiting and healing and living among for a while. When his own disciples uh, tell Jesus, hey, we tried to stop someone pulling a demon out of someone else because they weren't with our tribe. Jesus says, we're not a special tribe. We're not better than other people. Don't stop him. That person is doing the work that we're trying to do. And get this, they're not part of our tribe. And when we look at the architecture of the temple, what we see is that we see a group that's in charge saying, hey, we own God, and based on who you are depends on how close you can get to God. Jesus sees this and says, no, this isn't what God is about. And when we ask the question, what do these five stories teach us about God? 
I believe that they teach us that God sees any and all notions of tribal superiority as a sin. Anytime you are part of a tribe and it makes you think that you're better than another tribe because of your affiliation with the tribe that you're in, Jesus would call that a sin and would do whatever he could to put an end to that. God sees any and all notions of tribal superiority as a sin. This brings us to our second question, which is what do these stories tell us about ourselves? To answer that question, I would like to tell you a story about my son, Bodhi, who's two years old. Now, if I invited you over for dinner at my house, you would come over and we would sit around the table and the food would smell delicious. We'd be glad that you were there. I hope that you would be glad that you were with us. And as we were sitting around the table, right before we eat, I would ask the question, would anyone here like to pray? Before you could get any words out of your mouth, my son would raise his hand and say, me, me, I want to pray. Now, at this moment, you would be tempted to look at me and my wife and think to yourself, wow, what amazing parents Craig and Kimmy are. After all, they have somehow instilled a religious zeal and fire within their two-year-old from a very young age. It must be nice to be part of a pastor's family. And if you vocalize these thoughts to me, I would just smile and say, just wait two seconds and you'll realize what this is all about. Because it's here that my son would have everybody close their eyes and fold their hands and he'd start to pray. And he always prays the same way. Now he refers to my parents as Nana and Pops. And so his prayer goes something like this. Dear Jesus, Nana Pops, Nana Pops, Pops Nana, Nana Pops, Nana Pops. And after saying this probably 10 to 12 times, he then always says something like this, Maya, eyes. Now, Maya is my daughter who is five years old, three years older than Bodhi. And he always says Maya eyes because after some time, my daughter always opens her eyes and my son just sits there and waits, waits for the moment that her eyes crack open just a little bit so he can tell her what to do. He loves being able to tell his sister what to do. And this is why I'm convinced my son loves to pray. And so he'll be praying, Nana Pops, Nana Pops, Maya eyes. And at that moment, my daughter has to do what he says and his parents will back him up on this. And so my son, from a very young age, from the age of two, is using religion to assert authority over his sister. And the reason I tell you this story is because we are tempted from a very young age to often establish our authority over another. From the temple to the house in Capernaum to the road in between those two cities, we see people trying to say we're more important. We understand God better. We can tell you what to do because of religion. So when we ask the question, what do these stories tell us about ourselves? We have to be very honest about a temptation that every religious human being faces. If you are a religious human being, then you will be tempted to believe in your own tribal superiority. I can speak from the Christian experience. And I will tell you that leaders within Christianity will tell you over and over again that now that you are part of the Christian tribe, you are better than everyone else. And everyone flocks to this idea because they want so badly to be part of a tribe that establishes their superiority over another. 
While that may sound good and while it may expand churches and increase giving, I will tell you this is what Jesus railed against over and over and over again. Now, if you don't know me, then you may not know that I'm very pro-religion. I think religion has a lot of benefits. But without a doubt, one of the biggest critiques I have of religion is the fact that we so rarely speak about how religion often tempts people to believe in their own tribal superiority. So the healthiest thing that you and I can do is to acknowledge that along with a religious identity comes the temptation to believe in our religious superiority. Well, then at that point, we can deal with the problem and ultimately live in the way that Jesus asked us. Because when Jesus saw this, he continually asked people to stop being or attempting to be better than other people and instead lower yourself and serve someone because that's where God is leading us. These five stories teach us about ourselves that if we are a religious human being, then we will be tempted to believe in our own tribal superiority. Which brings us to the third question. What do these stories tell us about heaven? We are just a few weeks away from resurrection weekend. On that weekend, we will celebrate and remember that the tomb is empty. He is not here and that Jesus rose from the grave and conquered death. Now, Christians on this weekend often draw a direct line between the resurrection that happened and the resurrection that will happen. And when Christians talk about this, they talk about eternal life. And whenever we talk about eternal life, eventually the conversation shifts to who's in and who's out. Who is worthy of salvation and who is not. In fact, I have spoken with several Christians who believe that this is the most important question in all of Christianity. Just give me the basics. Just let me know what I need to do to be saved. And I will make sure that I don't miss it. So that way, when Jesus returns... I can make it to heaven. But what's fascinating to me is that when Christians talk about heaven, they often talk about it as the ultimate justification of tribal superiority. They talk about it when Jesus will come back to this earth, recognize his people, aka Christians, the tribe, and say, you alone are worthy of life. The rest of you all can die. And then Jesus will take the righteous or the tribe back to heaven while everyone else burns on this earth. So when we read these five stories and ask the question, what do these teach us about heaven? The answer I come to is that the Christian understanding of heaven is a symptom of our addiction to tribal superiority. This is why when you look throughout human history, Christianity has enabled, rather than attacked, people who are trying to establish their own white nationalist superiority over another race or nation. We saw this back in the 20th century when Adolf Hitler rose to power with a, a very strong message of tribal superiority, and it led to one of the most horrendous evils in the history of humanity, the Holocaust. And what's important for every Christian to remember is that Germany, during the rise of Hitler and throughout the Third Reich, identified as somewhere between 95 to 99% Christian. And rather than Christians looking around and saying, hey, remember the teachings of Jesus, Jesus warned us about this, that 
tribal superiority is ultimately a sin, they looked around and with their understanding of heaven said, oh, no, 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 no. This tribal superiority is the way of God. Just a few weeks ago in Christ Church in New Zealand, a white nationalist who believed in his own tribal superiority was frustrated with how Muslims were invading, quotes, his land. And so he did one of the most, I don't even know how to describe this kind of evil, where he live streamed with a camera him unloading rounds of ammunition at two different mosques. And, you know, he wanted to kill Muslims. And while most Christians I know were affected by the horror of this tragedy, um, this was not that far out of line with most Christians' understanding of what heaven is. I know several Christians who believe that Muslims aren't going to heaven and that these Muslims will die at the end of time. And when I hear that kind of theology, it, I mean, if you want to talk about what that looks like in reality, it's exactly what happened in Christ's church. And so that white nationalist violence is um, enabled or propped up by religion rather than torn down by the work of Jesus. Which brings us home to the United States of America. Now, when you look throughout our history, uh, we have done whatever we can to establish our tribal authority. And we've done it always masked and enabled by religion. Whether it's Jim Crow laws or racially motivated chattel slavery or the systemic removal and slaughter of Native Americans. Uh, this was all enabled because there's this understanding of heaven where, well, they're not going to heaven anyway, or they're going to have a separate heaven. So why should we have to treat them well now? So this is why when we hear words like extreme vetting or walls, Christians hear it today and it reinforces tribal superiority and they accept it because heaven in their minds is the ultimate kind of tribal authority over another human being. And I've often heard Christians talk about heaven in a way that sounds a lot to me like extreme vetting. So this is conducive to their understanding of heaven rather than being challenged by their understanding of heaven. And this idea that we need to build walls between us and other nations because we're the good nation and they're the bad nation. I picture us building walls and we find all of a sudden that when we build the walls that Jesus is on the other side of the wall. And I tell you all of this not to get you to vote a certain way, but to understand where all of this is coming from. And when you look at American Christianity and what it supports right now, I have found that you can always trace it back to this Christian understanding of heaven. And when we ask the question, what do these stories of Jesus tell us about heaven? I believe that it's the Christian understanding of heaven is a symptom of our addiction to tribal superiority. Jesus condemns this as a sin. We have to recognize it as a sin. And so whenever we're asking the question, who's in and who's out of heaven, let's recognize there's a much better question to ask based on the life and teachings of Jesus. The question we should ask is this, who do I hope will not make it into heaven? Because the chances are 
that whoever I hope will not make it into heaven is the exact person that Jesus is going to ask me to serve. Who do I hope will not make it into heaven? Because the chances are God will let that person to heaven. And I'll look at them and I'll say, God, why? Why did you allow this person in? And God will say, because my grace and my forgiveness and my love is much bigger than yours, Craig. How are you prepared to serve this person now in heaven? Now, at this point, if you're like me, you hear this and you say, oh, that sounds like difficult work. I have no idea how I could serve this person. At that point, I believe that Jesus would say to us, I know it's a lot of work, but it's the work that is worth doing. So I will tell you, my brothers and sisters, I have found it extremely helpful to just assume that everyone we meet is going to heaven. Now, I want to be perfectly clear. I don't know for sure whether every person is going to heaven or not. I don't really find a lot of energy and enjoyment in trying to figure out who is in and who is out. That is for God to decide and for God to decide alone. However, when I hear Jesus's words about serving people outside of my tribe, about lowering myself, reminding me not to get caught up in tribal superiority because that is a sin, I have found personally that the most helpful thing to me is to assume that every person I meet is going to heaven. And if I have to serve them then, I might as well start serving them now. And so, my brothers and sisters, may you have the courage, the inspiration, and the determination to learn how to serve one another. May you see and embrace Jesus Christ. 